good to be part of a community of faith that takes seriously God's command to spread the fame of Jesus Christ. And so I'm so thankful for you ladies and your ministry there. And I think, uh, okay, uh, just uh, a couple years ago, there was just a handful, just uh, maybe you and another going from Hamilton and now... It seems like uh, five or six, and it's wonderful to see that ministry grow. And I know they're going back to South Dakota uh, to do the annual VBS trip there in, in a month or two. And um, so please uh, be in prayer for that uh, work. And, and we do want to invite all you uh, who uh, here are members of Hamilton Baptist Church, our regular attenders. Uh, there are all sorts of mission opportunities throughout the year. And that going on missions not only blesses those who we have an opportunity to share with, but as uh, Carol shared with us, uh, it has a profound impact on you as well. And so I praise God for that work. I do want to also thank God for uh, our sister Brooke, who was here. I don't know if you appreciated her offering in worship for us this morning. And so thank you very much, Brooke. Brooke, uh, I don't where are you? Somewhere here, I think. There you are. Brooke is uh, in California. She's uh, the granddaughter of Marsha and Bob Newtsman. And so that's her connection to our church. And so thank you very much, sister. Well, I do want to invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we will be in Luke chapter 6 now. So, uh, praise the Lord, we've, we've made it to a new chapter, and so that's exciting. And uh, Luke 6, uh, verse 1, tr- I know you're worried. I'm going to slow down, so don't, uh, don't get too bent out of shape. Um, Luke 6 is uh, just a, a glorious deep passage, and uh, if God is willing, we'll spend some time in this wonderful chapter. We'll begin, of course, in verse 1 and go through verse 11 this morning. You'll find that on page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And as we do, typically every uh, Sunday, we're just going to go verse by verse, if that's okay with you. I would appreciate, I think you would benefit, rather, from having a copy of God's Word open during our time together so that you might uh, be able to work through this text with me. So Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, please hear now the Word of God. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields with his, disciple, his disciples, plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he had healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Our Father, we're so thankful now for your word that we could come and sit under it. 
We confess once again that your word is our authority in our life. We are called to submit to its teaching, for you have given it to us. And so we have gathered here today, once again, your people, Hamilton Baptist Church, that we might do just that. Submit under you by submitting to your word. So we ask that you would help us. That you would teach us your word. That we might know Christ and follow him more faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 150 years ago, doctors did not know that infections were spread by dirty hands. Therefore, the best hospitals in the world lost one out of ten women to death after childbirth. They called it childbirth fever. And the routine of the day was the doctors would begin in the dissecting room, perhaps forming an autopsy and exploring the human body. And then in the afternoon, they would go and examine expected mothers, never washing their hands in between. It wasn't until 1846 when a Hungarian doctor by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis became the first man in history to draw the connection between not washing and infection and even death. And so he began to wash his hands in a chlorine solution before he would examine expected mothers. His death rate at his hospital immediately dropped from one out of ten to one out of a hundred. And yet despite his success, he spent his life arguing in vain with his colleagues. They didn't believe him. Their traditions were so strong that they were actually offended at the suggestion that these women were dying due to their negligence. After all, doctors have been delivering babies for centuries without washing, and no young, outspoken doctor was going to convince them otherwise. Dr. Semmelweis died at age 47 as a medical outcast. We come today to study, if you will, some spiritual leaders. These Pharisees, they too had their traditions. They too did not realize that they were filthy. And along comes this young rabbi, Or as he would identify himself earlier in Luke chapter 5 as this young spiritual doctor, Dr. Jesus. And he comes to point out the harm that their rules and practices are producing in people's lives. Now this is not the first conflict, as you know, with Jesus with the Pharisees. We've seen now three earlier conflicts at the end of Luke chapter 5. A conflict over forgiving sins, a conflict with eating with sinners, and a conflict that he does not fast. And it's in this point where Jesus encounters these Pharisees twice more on the Sabbath day that it seems like he has had enough. That Jesus is now pretty angry at their hard-heartedness, their fault-findingness, their compassionless legalists. But he's not the only one who's angry. The Pharisees are angry as well. This young rabbi is ignoring their tradition. He's not playing by their rules. In fact, they become so angry with him, by the end of this encounter, they will decide they must kill him. They must put him to death. As I mentioned, both these stories that we look at today occur on the Sabbath. Something that was very precious uh, precious to the Jewish leaders of the day. And Jesus understood this. Jesus saw the collision coming. But he wouldn't back down. He wouldn't compromise. He wouldn't seek to make peace with them. No, rather he would declare himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus, you see, is consumed with one thing. And it is to do the Father's will. And it's in this passage that we really see Jesus beginning to run ahead straight to the cross that he might do God's will. 
So this morning, let's uh, consider the Lord of the Sabbath. And who is this Jesus as he unfolds himself in this Gospel of Luke rather clearly in this wonderful and beautiful passage? We see, first of all, that Jesus announces his authority. He announces his authority. As you see in verse 1, the Bible says, On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And so they're walking through the fields. It is, of course, someone else's field. They don't own that field. And, and there they find some grain, perhaps wheat or barley. And, they, and they're just plucking the kernel off the, the heads of those grains. And they're, they're eating it. They're, they're having lunch. The, Jesus and disciples are out having a picnic, if you will. And it wouldn't be a picnic if Pharisees weren't involved, right? And so we see that they are there in verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Which kind of makes me think, how do they even know what he's doing? It seems like they're following him around at this time. Before we moved up here a couple years ago, we had a a 15-acre hobby farm uh, down south. And uh, I didn't get a chance to bush hog it all the time. And, and a lot of times the, the weeds grew rather high and they would grow three and even four feet high. And, and many times I'd be out working in the field and, and unbeknownst to me, children are hiding in the weeds. And right when daddy gets close, they jump out and say, surprise, and, and give me quite, quite a shock. Right? I almost, I, that's the vision I have here. These grown men uh, with their royal robes hiding in the barley and they jump out and say, we got him. We got you. The hand is in the cookie jar. And so they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, they're not accusing Jesus of stealing, though this is not his grain. In fact, uh, there is a provision in the Bible in the Old Testament for the hungry and the poor that they can go into anybody's field and handpick whatever they want for their own personal consumption. The book of Deuteronomy says, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but you do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's uh, grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. This was God's way of providing for those who had nothing. This was his welfare system, if you will. So the issue is not that he's taking this grain. The issue is that he's doing it on the Sabbath. Why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, they say? The Sabbath, of course, is the fourth command in the Ten Commandments of God that we are not to do any work on the Sabbath, who is a day of rest. He's, he uh, tells us you are to observe and keep the Sabbath, not to work. And, and so that raises a question, doesn't it? Well, what is, what is, it, what is work? I mean, what, what does that mean? Or, or what does it mean to rest? And, and, and God never really said. God just said, don't, you just can't work. Take a, take a break. Take a rest. Take a, a holiday. Or, or, or we get the word a holy day. And so God had given them this, but the Pharisees came and they began to give 39 different categories of work in order to identify it. For instance, God said, you're not allowed to carry heavy things on the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17 verse 21 said, take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath. Well, what's a load? Are your clothes a load? The Pharisees asked. Well, they decided your clothes are not a load if you wear them, but if you carry them, they are. And so to wear clothing on the Sabbath is not a sin, but to carry, to carry clothing is. So you can wear your jacket today, but you cannot carry it. Or, or what is travel? I mean, how far can I go on the Sabbath? Well, the Pharisees decided you could go a thousand yards, but not a thousand and one. You go a thousand and one, you sin, unless you put food somewhere away from your house, because the food is just an extension of your house. So if you put your food a thousand yards away, you can go to the food, and then you could go a thousand yards from the food, but you cannot go a step farther. That, of course, would be a sin. Well, you, you, you can, on, if you have a sore throat on the Sabbath, you may, evidently, according to the Jewish traditions, you may swallow vinegar. 
but you may not gargle it. That would be work, evidently. You are not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath, for you may be tempted to see a gray hair and pluck it out. That too would be work. You cannot even take a, take a bath on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisaical laws. After all, water may spill on the floor and accidentally wash it. That too would be considered work. If you are interested, you are allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath, but you can only do so with one hand. And so if you get bored in the sermon, you could try that with your shoelaces. Just try, try tying with one hand. Well, so they have all these laws, and Jesus is violating many of them. In fact, he's violating three. He's harvesting, he plucked the grain, he's threshing, he rubbed the grain, and the other accounts tell us he blew on it, he's winnowing. It's a triple violation of their laws. And these self-appointed Sabbath police jump out and say, you're breaking the law. Why are you doing what's not lawful? They're here to discredit Jesus. But the question is, is what law are they referring to? I think Jesus helps us answer when he says in verse 3, And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? You see the mild rebuke there, or perhaps not so mild. You are teachers of law. Have you not even read this story? Well, what is this story? Well, verse 4, How he entered the house of God and took and ate some bread of the presence, which is not lawful, but, uh, not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. It's an interesting story. When King Saul became so jealous over David, he became consumed by that. In fact, quite literally, he went insane. And he tried to kill David a number of times. And eventually, David said, I'm out of here. And he takes some men and he flees for his life. But he doesn't have time to take any provisions. He ends up at the tabernacle. And he comes to the priest and he says, do you have any food? We're starving. We, we, were, we're, we had to leave in haste and we have no food. And, and they ask, he asks the priest. And the priest says, well, not really. I mean, we kind of have food. All, all we have is the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of presence were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel placed there in the tabernacle on the, on the golden table. And it was only lawful for the priest to eat after it sat out for a week. And then the priest can consume it. And, and, and so David's technically not allowed to eat that bread. He's not a priest. And it's interesting, a conversation, because the priest then goes on and he asks, well, are you guys holy? In fact, specifically, he says, have you been with any women? And, and David says, no, 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 no. We're really good guys. We love Jesus. We love God. I guess he didn't say we love Jesus, but we're following God. And you know what the priest did? He gave him bread. He said, okay, here, take and eat this bread. Well, it's an interesting story, but we're kind of left wondering, well, why in the world? How does this apply to what Jesus is doing? Because there's no indication whatsoever that David ate on the Sabbath. I mean, that story has absolutely nothing to do with the Sabbath. So why even bring this up? I think what Jesus is helping us understand is the purpose behind the law. That God's law has always been intended to help you and I to both love God and to love our neighbors. And therefore the law was never meant to be so strict that it would exclude meeting someone else's need. It would never be so strict to exclude compassion. Elsewhere Jesus will say that the Sabbath was made for man, right? Not man for the Sabbath, I didn't create man to serve the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath to serve you. For instance, let, let's say, uh, remember back when you were a teenager and you had the curfew? And let's say you, maybe some teens, you could, you could relate to this. Let's say you had a curfew and you're out with your friend's house and, and it's time, the, the curfew's approaching and you think, okay, well, I need to get home and, and everyone has the curfew and they all get in their cars and you all drive home. Well, you see your friend in, in the car in front of you and they get a flat tire and you notice they have to pull over on the side of the road. And now you, now you have a, a somewhat of a question, what to do. I, I, could, I could just bail on my friend, leave him stranded on the side of the road and make the curfew. Or I could pull over and help my friend and yet violate mom and dad's law. Well, I would imagine your mom and dad would want you to pull over and help. 
I would imagine the law that they give you, the rule that they give you was never meant to say, now exclude being compassionate to those who are in need. No, I think they would want you to actually violate the law to help those in need. You see, the godly man did the right thing in David's day, and the God man is doing the right thing now. He's not violating any law. He's explaining the point of the law. The the point of the law is to to love God and to love our neighbors. In fact, he even goes beyond that, and he says, in fact, I'm going to even move beyond what is lawful or what is not lawful. The issue is not simply what I'm doing, but it's who I am, as you see in verse 5. And he said to them, the son of the man, son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's almost as if Jesus anticipates their objection. They might say, well, who do you think you are? Right? That was David. Who are you? Well, Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. I'm far greater than David. I'm greater than Moses who gave you this law. In fact, I'm the one who gave Moses the law. We're having this little spat over the rules. Please understand, I'm the one who made the rules. This is my Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who came up with the six days work on the seventh day rest. So just spare me, okay? Because I determine what is lawful and unlawful, what is right and wrong. It's my decision. There is no one higher than me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And once again, Jesus is exerting, uh, claiming to be divine. And we have seen this over and over and over in Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, we saw that Gabriel declared he is the son of the Most High and his kingdom will be unending. Elizabeth called him my Lord. In chapter 2, the angels say that he has been born a Savior, Christ the Lord. The Father in chapter 3 will say, this is my beloved Son. The devil will call him in chapter 4, the Son of God. The demons will call him the Holy One of God. In chapter 5, he'll declare that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, that he is the physician who brings the cure to our terminal sin sickness, that he is the groom that brings joy and celebration. And now in chapter 6, he's the one who says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have all authority. It is mine. I am king. I I am authority. And I, I, I belabor on this point because there is this understanding in our culture that Jesus is a good guy. He's a good example, right? And we should just, you know, let's not worry about his authority, but let's just look at his In fact, he's an example, and we should, you know, what would Jesus do? We're just going to follow the example of Jesus. Well, I wonder, are you going to follow him on this one? Right? You, you drive home this afternoon and you and your spouse are talking and talking about the, the, the message perhaps and what did you learn and what did you find compelling and your husband turns to you and says, honey, I, I need to tell you something. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? How, how are you going to respond? Well, that's very interesting. That's a pretty good teaching. Please explain more. No, you're going to say you're crazy. You're not the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who do you think you are? See, the natural response when someone says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, is to say, wait a minute. Isn't God the Lord of the Sabbath? And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly right. That's who I am. I'm not some gentle good example to follow. I am God incarnate and I have come with authority. Please understand, contrary to what you may hear in American Christianity, you don't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. He's Lord in heaven, he's Lord on earth, he's Lord over everything, and you may submit to his lordship, and if you do, he will graciously forgive you all your sins because of his work on the cross and an empty tomb. He is Lord, and he calls for us to trust him, to submit to him. In fact, I believe only by trusting in Jesus can we actually observe the true Sabbath, actually practice this idea of what it means to be uh, uh, in, uh, in a Sabbath rest, by trusting God. Realizing the fact that he's the one who takes care of all your needs. He's going to take care of you. The, to take a break, to stop working, is in some sense to declare that I'm not God. 
and, and I'm just going to rest. And I'm going to trust God with all my concerns and my anxieties. I'm going to trust Him with all my goals and my ambitions. I'm going to trust in the Lord. In fact, I mentioned that the, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. You know, we get, or we, we see the, the Ten Commandments twice, right? We get it in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, but they're also told for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the second giving of the law. And so Moses, right before they go in the promised land, he comes and gives them the law again. And the law, the Ten Commandments are exactly the same except for one commandment. It is the fourth commandment. Now, of course, he says you shall keep the Sabbath in both places. But the reason why changes. In Exodus 20, you to keep the Sabbath because on six days God created the world and on the seventh day he rested. And that's, so that makes sense to us. But in Deuteronomy 5, he says keep the Sabbath because you once were slaves and now you're free. And that's interesting because what is, what is being a slave and now being free have anything to do with keeping the Sabbath? Well, I think it's because slaves don't get to rest. Right? Slaves don't get to take a, a day off. Slaves have to constantly work. And God is saying, I have redeemed you. You are mine. And now you may, you're no longer a slave. You may rest in the fact that I, I am for you and I will take care of you and you belong to me. You're not a slave anymore. I redeemed you. Now my question for you, my, my brothers and sisters, is are you slaves? I think some people are slaves. Even, they may even be the boss. And they're still slaves. Slaves to work, slaves to family expectations, slaves to ambitions. I think we need to come to a point where we say, well, I'm, I'm not going to let my company define me. I'm not going to let my money define me. I'm not going to let the title define me. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to rest. I think some people need fewer goals, fewer professional goals. Need to learn to say no. I'm going to trust God in this. And I'm going to take my time and rest. I'm just not going to work and work and work. And, and maybe that means you fall behind in your career. Maybe, maybe you don't. But either way, you'll be sane. And you'll be resting in God, trusting God to provide for you. He knows what he's saying. He has this authority. Trust him. Well, the second story, Jesus explains that he has come to bring mercy, to provide mercy. This, again, is on the Sabbath. This will be the fifth encounter with the Pharisees. Note verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So once again, we find Jesus back in the Old Testament church, and, and there's a disabled man and with a withered hand. So it's Jesus and this man. Of course, it wouldn't be a church service without the Pharisees. And so they're there in verse 7, and we read, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. It's interesting. They've come to church for an interesting reason, isn't it? Not to pray, not to worship, not to love God or their neighbor. They have come to church quite specifically to find something wrong with Jesus. They're looking for something to accuse him. And, and, and specifically, it seems like they want to know if he will heal on the Sabbath. One of their Sabbath rules was it's against their law to heal on the Sabbath unless it was life-threatening. So it was, the idea was have mercy on some other day. Let's just not do it on God's day. Right? Help someone out on some other day, but let, let's make sure we don't do it on the Sabbath. Once again, teaching us that at times, religious people can be the cruelest people in the world. We need to leave this man in his wretched condition, not heal him today. I find this passage, in fact, very ironic because evidently they know Jesus can heal. This man is clearly a plant. Right? They're, they're setting a trap. They're, they're bringing a man with a deformed hand, knowing full well that Jesus could heal. And you would think if they know this man could heal people with deformities, that would cause them to pause and think, wait a second, maybe we should really consider who this is that we're trying to trap. Who is this man that could do these wonderful things? But I'm afraid that thought did not enter their head. 
Instead, they watched him like an eagle waiting to attack. Jesus, well, well aware of the trap set before him, as we see in verse 8, but he knew their thoughts, right? He knows what they're going to do. He knows what this is all about. We wonder, just once will Jesus back down? Just once will Jesus work for peace in the family? No, I'm afraid not. No, he has no intention to retreat. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, he will say, do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, not peace, but rather division. But before he divides, he provokes. Read on in verse 8. And he said to the withered man, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. You, you notice that he's calling this man right in the front of the service. And in verse 6, it says Jesus was teaching. I almost wonder if he stopped his sermon just right in the middle and asked this man. There's no quiet healing on the side, in other words. He calls him front and center. And it's here that we, we find that Jesus is rather perturbed with these Pharisees because they have told him, hey, listen, you can't forgive sins and you can't spend time with sinners and you need to st- start fasting and you, you need not to eat on the Sabbath. And Jesus is at the, just enough. He's at this point where he's, this frustration with them is just beginning to boil over and he's fed up with their hypocrisy. He's fed up with their legalism. He's fed up with all this judgment. And it's almost saying, okay, I'm going to bring this man right in front. And you want a showdown? Okay, we're going to have a showdown right now. And he brings this man up and he, and everyone's looking at him and this man is standing right next to Jesus. And before he does anything with this man, he, he asks the congregation a question in verse nine. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Now, I may not be a very bright man, but that seems like an easy question to me. Right? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or bad? Right? I'm going with good. Right? That doesn't seem, like, doesn't seem like a challenging thought at all. In fact, Ma- Matthew tells us Jesus actually illustrates the question. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Right? You'll do a good thing for a sheep. Well, well certainly you'll do a good thing for one who's made in the image of God. And so he asks this question. And we, we're, we're, we're almost anticipating or at least hoping that they'll say, oh boy, man, we missed this one. Well, we, we didn't see it this way, Jesus. We're sorry. You're right. But once again, I'm afraid not. All Jesus receives is silence. No respo- response. They just stare back at Jesus. Their stubborn resistance to admit they're wrong, to admit the truth. And please realize there's a man with a withered hand. It is his right hand, Luke tells us, which means everything in this culture you do with your right hand, you only do things that are unseemly with your left. His life is incredible hardship. This man's life is ruined. And, and here's a man whose life is ruined, and, Jesus, and they won't answer Jesus because they're afraid to lose a debate. And, and he's angry with them. Notice verse 10. Uh, read, read on. Uh, it says, and, and after looking at them all, right? see him scanning the congregation, waiting for the response, waiting for someone to say, yes, let's do mercy. Let's do good. Mark tells us in his account, he looked at them with anger and was deeply saddened at the hardness of their heart. And with this, this anger and sadness mixed within Jesus' heart, he says to the man in verse 10, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Once again, immediate healing, miraculous compassion and power. Jesus comes and and his hand is now whole again. Jesus brings mercy. 
I mean, have you not seen this in Luke's gospel? Mercy after mercy after mercy. The demonized in Capernaum, mercy. The healing that night, mercy. A leper, uh, uh, an outcast, mercy. A paralytic who, who can't walk, receives forgiveness and healing, mercy. Calling Levi, this tax collector, far from God, mercy. A feast with sinners. It is a mercy feast. And now there is mercy on the Sabbath. I want you to understand, when Jesus came to this earth, He did not come bringing a list of things for you you to do. He came saying, would you like grace? Would you like mercy? Jesus is not primarily a law giver. He is a law fulfiller and he calls for you and me to come and follow him and he will change our lives through his mercy. He's come to bring that mercy. In fact, I love the fact how this man receives it. I don't know if you notice this, because Jesus does not immediately heal him. He actually gives a command to the man prior to the healing. Did you know that? He says to him to stretch out your hand before he even healed his hand. And you almost think this man could have responded. What, what are you talking about? My hand's withered. That's the whole problem. I can't stretch out my hand. What do you mean you're telling me to stretch out my hand? I have a deformity. Well, that doesn't stop him, does it? He obeys. And it's only when he trusts that Christ is not mocking him, that he has the power to do what he is uh, implying that he will do. It's only when he trusts him that the mercy comes. It's only when he trusts him that grace comes, that blessing comes. In that sense, it's a parable for salvation, is it not? It is only when we trust Christ. It is only when we come to Christ that he comes and responds to us with mercy, that he showers us with mercy. I wonder if if God has ever laid upon your heart to do something that seems unreasonable to you. Every once in a while, God puts something in me, and and I I think, I'm sorry, you want me to do what now? You ever get that? I can't do that. I've never done that before. I'm afraid to do that. I believe, friends, it is only when we trust him in obedience that the blessings then come upon us. He comes to give mercy. But here, he, he's not simply giving mercy, but he's giving liberty. And I want, I want you to understand this, because we struggle, I, I think, uh, with this idea of legalism. And these Pharisees, uh, we would rightly call legalists. And we use that term, but I think it's important for us to understand what this liberty that Jesus gives us from, from legalism. Legalism, by the way, is not keeping God's commands. Right? We're supposed to keep God's commands. Jesus obeys God. We're supposed to obey God. God makes demands on our life. Please understand, Jesus will make amazingly hard demands on your life. And in obeying them, you find joy and purpose and fulfillment. And so a grace from God does not mean we're free to disobey God. So legalism is not obeying God's commands. Nor is legalism making extra biblical rules. That's not legalism. We have all sorts of extra biblical rules in my house, for instance. Right? Boys are to honor their sisters. That's a rule in the carn house. Kids are not to talk back to mom. That's a rule in our house. And my kids talk back to my, uh, my wife. They cannot come to me and say, sorry, dad, I know I'm, I'm under grace. Sorry, dad, you're a legalist. I'm going to talk back to mom. I'm going to do what I want. That will not fly far in my home. Right? So legalism is not creating these, these extra biblical rules either. But it's taking these extra biblical rules or preferences or traditions and elevating them to the level of biblical mandate and then beginning to evaluate other people by whether they actually keep your rules and your preferences and your traditions. And we've seen this in the church. It used to be you're not allowed to dance or play cards or go to movies or, or drink alcohol, this, this fu- the fundamentalist of, of the old. And we, they had all these rules and they begin to evaluate other people, not all of them, but some of them, by whether you kept those rules. 
And now we, we have our rules too, don't we? And they may be more subtle, but we, we have these preferences. Like what, what kind of attire are you supposed to have on Sunday morning, right? And some people will, will judge other people by what they actually wear on Sunday morning or what kind of songs you sing. Do you have a guitar? Do you have an organ? And we begin to evaluate their spiritual health by what type of music they sing or what political party you vote for or, or, or where your children go to school. And we have these preferences and there's nothing wrong with having them. But it is wrong when we say, I'm sorry, you're not dressed appropriately, therefore you're in sin. I'm sorry you voted for the wrong political party, therefore you're in sin. I'm sorry your kids are in the wrong school, therefore you are in sin. That's legalism. It's this judgmental, critical attitude when you begin to look for what's wrong in other people's life. It's a condemning attitude. And many people, they search for things to criticize. Right? I mean, they planted this man in the synagogue, didn't they? They're looking for a reason to accuse him. And people actually come to church services looking to accuse, looking to complain, looking to judge. And maybe it's too hot or too cold or the songs aren't right. The, the pastor's sermon is too short. Right? Right? <laughs> they, they're, they're looking to, to find something wrong with what's going on. Right? I'll tell you, the attitude you walk into this building with will play a huge role when whether you walk away full and joyful or empty and bitter. They come to church to judge, and there's just this joylessness there. Right? There, there's no joy. Do you like hanging out with legalists? Do you like hanging out with people? Oh, let's get together and we can criticize other people. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Right? No. There's no love, there's no care, there's no mercy. There's just, just rules. Do this, don't do that, eat this, don't eat that. And, and Jesus calls this man for busy. He wants to do a little bit of battle here. He says, this is my Sabbath. Sabbath is a rest. You're supposed to take a break. That's what it is. Stop working. And you know what? You know how you ruin something like that? You add rules to it. You begin to add all these rules. This is how you do it right. This is how you do it wrong. It's like uh, one pastor called it birthday cake rules. Do you know how to, you know, birthday cake is good, right? We all like birthday cake, and birthday cake, uh, what do you do with it? You eat it, right? You like it, and you eat it, and it tastes good. Well, you, you ruin birthday cake by placing rules on it, right? If you say, well, we can't have vanilla cake or we, and, and not red velvet cake, we can only have carrot cake, right? Or what, some other type of vegetable cake, that, whatever you want to do. And we'll put nuts in it, okay? Right? But no sprinkles, and, and you can't eat it on Monday, certainly not, or, or Wednesday, but you, you can't have it on Tuesday between 5 and 6. And, and, and you can only eat it with your left hand and then eat it with a spoon, and if it drops on the floor, you can't pick it up and still eat it like you do in the car house. Okay? And we have all, all, all these rules of, of cake, and you got to do it this way and do it this way, and then someone bakes the cake and says, here you go, enjoy your cake. And you're, you're like, you're paralyzed. Because you're afraid you're going to eat the birthday cake wrongly. I don't, I don't know how to eat it anymore. I used to just eat it and like it. But now I'm afraid I'm going to do it wrongly. See, God says, listen, I, I would like to give you a day off every seven days. And the way to destroy that is to put all these rules on it. Okay, if we're to take a day off, we need a rule book for how to take a day off. We need a to-do list for how to rest. And you need to memorize this book. And all of a sudden, you're afraid you're going to rest incorrectly. You're going to rest wrongly. And Jesus says, I, listen, I made the Sabbath. I'm taking it back. And I'm just tired of all this nonsense. So go pick some grain. Go do some ministry. I'm here to set the captives free. 
This is what Christ has come, to give freedom. Do, do not think that Christianity is this closed-minded, boring, joyless people who just want to stop people from having a good time. I don't know who those people are, but it doesn't seem like a lot like Jesus. He shows up and he has joy and delight and celebration. He says, I'm here to bring liberty from all these self-made rules that we are imprisoning people with. He comes to give liberty. Now, Christian, watch out for your own heart. Because I, I'm telling you, there's a legalist in every one of us. And the longer you follow Jesus, the more likely he will emerge. And, and I remember there was a time in my life where I was the theology police. I would come and I would listen to preaching and, and I would look for theological error. And in fact, to be honest, I would actually find joy when I found it. Right? And I would think, wow, I, you know, pat myself on the back, well done, theology policeman. I wish someone would have smacked me upside the head, to be honest. That was a terrible way to live. There's no joy in all. In fact, to be honest, the, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, my study of it years ago, has profoundly uh, challenged my way to live. We have to watch out. Now, you know who Jesus is never angry with? Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. You know who he's almost always angry with? The religious leaders of the day. And that makes me nervous. That's, that should probably make you nervous, too. We need to be aware of this. Because sometimes it's very easy to exalt things and miss what matters most to God. It's sacrifice and love. Loving God and loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. He's come to give liberty, set the captives free, he said at Nazareth. Well, even you think the most hard-hearted would see such a display of love and mercy and liberty that they would shout praises to God. Once again, I'm afraid not, as we lastly see that Jesus instigates hostility. Verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. See, Jesus comes and he's helping people and loving people and manifesting this mercy and they manifest wrath. That word fury is an interesting word. It's not the word anger. It's literally unthinkable rage, madness, mindless anger. And you, you wonder, what has he done that's upset them so much? I mean, he, in fact, he didn't even break their Sabbath rules because he didn't do any work. He didn't put any ointment on this guy or bandage him. He didn't perform any surgery. All he did was speak, and the man's hand was healed. How could that be work? In fact, it's much more work to form this group to consort on how you can hurt Jesus than what he did. But he's clearly a threat to them. You see, by the way, legalism makes you angry. In fact, it makes you dangerous. You're willing to hurt people, whether verbally or in this case physically, because you know that Luke tells us very clearly, it's not they're considering what they might do with Jesus, but what they might do to Jesus. They are now willing to hurt him. And again, in Matthew's parallel account, it says they begin to consider how they might destroy him. And so they are no longer considering how to discredit him or slow him down or stop him. They now want to assassinate him, kill him murder him. And for the next two years, this will be their full-time occupation. How can they put an end to Jesus? In fact, you might want to even know Luke 6, 11. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's from this point on that the religious leaders of the day have declared that we are no longer investigating him. We have decided that he must die. Jesus asks, is it better to destroy life, to save life or destroy it? They have decided, haven't they? And they have decided it is better to destroy life, at least the life of King Jesus. King has come, he's giving mercy and liberty, and they want to kill him. The tragic irony is that it's a sin in their mind to heal on the Sabbath, but it's somehow okay to plot murder on the Sabbath. In fact, murder of the one who actually gave them the Sabbath. So they're going to plot to kill him, and of course they will. They'll succeed in this plot. 
Two years later, they're going to nail him to a Roman cross. And because he died, again, the irony is because he died, you and I could actually find true rest. We could find our true Sabbath. You know, the New Testament teaches that the Sabbath was a pointer to Jesus. That the, the, the Sabbath was a shadow. We kind of saw what Jesus would be like, but Jesus is the substance. Colossians 2 verse 17 says, The Sabbath was a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That Jesus is our rest. We find rest in Him. Rest from all our striving. Rest from all our, our attempts to, to make ourselves fit before God. In fact, on the cross did not Jesus declare, It is finished. Right? Salvation is finished. If it's finished, what then is left for you and I to do? Nothing. Nothing. All we have to do is rest in Jesus. All we must do is cease our striving and rest in our Christ. Rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, it reminds me of, of what God did in, in Genesis. And when He created the world, and six days He made it, on the seventh day He stepped back and, and He declared, It is very good. That's rest, isn't it? It's a satisfaction in what you've done. Stop your work and to, to take an accounting of it. And God says, it's paradise. It's wonderful. There's nothing left for creation. In creation, it is, it is perfect. And God declared, it is, it is finished. And Jesus on the cross declares, it is finished. It's done. The work is done. And all, all we must do is trust in His work. Rest in Him. And when we do, God looks on you in Christ looks on you in your sin through Christ and says, she is good. He is very good because of the work of Christ. He's our Sabbath. Do you, do you know that kind of rest? You remember the, the movie Chariots of Fire? The, the two Olympians, sprinters, one by the name of Harold Abrams and the other by the name Eric Little. It's a true story, as you know. Both individuals working very hard, but in a, with a totally different heart attitude. Little said to his sister, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Abrams said about the Olympics, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Pretty profoundly different. One bases all his identity in his performance. The other has all his identity in God and just wants to find pleasure in him. Right? Abrams has to prove himself. Therefore, he works very hard. Little working very hard as well, but he's working hard because he finds pleasure in God. In fact, we might say one is resting even when they're working, and the other is working even when he's resting. Well, the story goes that they find out the race is on the Sabbath. And, and Little says, well, I'm not going to run. And it's not because he's a legalist, but it's because he's so secure in Jesus that he's willing to say, I'm not going to run even if it means cost me the gold medal. I don't need it. I have Christ. And Abrams runs because he has to prove himself. And he wins. He wins the gold medal. But if you watch the movie, it's never enough. It's never enough. The work is never finished unless you rest in Jesus. Jesus said, I I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I don't think he's simply saying, I make the rules of the Sabbath. I think he's saying, I am your Sabbath. Come to me, he invites us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give you rest. 
in Him. No more working for your salvation. No more guilt laid upon you. No more fear. No more uncertainty. Just mercy and grace and love from a God who has finished your work. May we rest in Christ today. Happy Sabbath. Rest in Jesus who has finished your course. Who has done your work. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We want you to understand that when you come to Jesus, many people think I come to Jesus and he's just going to give me a bunch of things to do. I don't want to come to Jesus. But I'm, I'm going to have to, this is just so much work. I'm going to have to change everything about me. And there's some truth in that. There'll be some change. But I want you to understand that when you come to Jesus, what you get primarily is not rules, but you get rest. You, the work's already done in Christ. And he says, come and rest in me and follow me. And you know what? I, I'm going to change you little by little. And I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And he's going to begin to work in your heart. And, 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 and I'm going to give you forgiveness of all your sin and everything you've ever done against me. I'll just pay for it all on the cross. And, and I'm going to give you a family to support you, a people who are also following me, who, who will not judge you, but will, who will carry your burdens and, and push you towards me. And, and one day, in fact, I, you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you heaven. I'm going to recreate this whole world and there's going to be no more guilt or fear or uncertainty or pain or hardship. It's just going to be like a perpetual rest and I'm going to give it to you because I love you. I'll give it to you. I'm going to finish it. All you must do is come to me. I have no idea why anyone would say to him, no, thank you. Why would anyone turn their back on that offer? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite you, based upon the authority of God's holy word, to be saved today and rest in Christ. Our Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his wonderful goodness to us, the mercy and freedom that he comes to give us. We thank you for his authority. And we find security in our king's authority, knowing our king is always for us. So ask what you will, Jesus. We bow our knee to you. We pray even now for our friend here that does not know you. May you work in their heart faith to believe in you and a willingness to submit their life to you. For the rest of us as we leave, perhaps we're anxious. Perhaps we have concerns weighing heavy on us. Perhaps we are exhausted with all the work as before us, will you help us not only to rest physically, but ultimately and most importantly rest in Christ that our identity will be found in Jesus. Will you help my brothers and sisters and me as well, my God, to remind ourselves that we have nothing to prove to anyone. That we are accepted by our God fully and completely and forevermore through the work of Jesus. May that be enough for us all, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.